KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Ken Burns has a new documentary on PBS, The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's the most politically engaged and relevant work of his career. Historian David Nassau will comment. Also, bad Mexicans. That's what the revolutionaries of 1910 were called as they fought on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border against the robber barons and their political allies. UCLA historian Kelly Little Hernandez tells that story. It's the subject of her new book titled Bad Mexicans. It's been longlisted for the National Book Award. But first, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, you've been studying strategies for increasing youth turnout in the midterms. Young voters are the most democratic of all age groups, but they also have the lowest turnout rates, especially in the midterm elections. The conventional wisdom right now is that abortion rights are the key to getting young voters out, but Democrats worry that the economic challenges young people face may either keep them away from voting or even maybe move some of them into the Republican column. What have you found? Well, I have found some polling uh, conducted by Peter Hart Research, and the polling shows that uh, the Democrats do need uh, an economic incentive, and uh, they actually have that incentive in uh, their policies about increasing uh, the minimum wage, uh, child tax credit, and uh, having workers have a, a voice on the job. I mean, we, we know that young Americans at this point are probably the most pro-union generation in American history, actually, with rate of union support, uh, you know, in the 70s and maybe in some cases even in the uh, low 80 percentiles. Uh, and so these are the kinds of issues that speak to them. Abortion is still, you know, the Democrats' best issue, but we should probably view it as a necessary but not sufficient uh, issue to yield the kind of voter turnout that Democrats are going to need in the midterm elections. Yeah, just to highlight the numbers that you quoted in the, in the prospect, this was a survey of voters in nine swing states. It found that among all voters, uh, they favored Democratic candidates. This is for Senate seats, 48 to 42. But among voters 18 to 39, the margin was 57 to 29. Really a big difference between young, vo young voters and older voters. Well, and that's reflected not just in the swing states, but in, the, uh, in pretty much every state. And it has been for a while, but it's, it's growing more accentuated. Certainly the, the what we call culture war issues uh, particularly drive younger voters into the Democratic column, but uh, so do economic justice issues. And so all of those, uh, all of those matter. And, you know, the Democrats need to pound on those between now and November. Also on the youth front, you've been thinking about Russia, about the headlines about Putin drafting young Russian men to fight in Ukraine. 
And it occurred to you that this has certain parallels to our own history. Well, it does. Uh, I was, was struck by the fact there was uh, a New York Times reported on a uh, story that emerged Monday in uh, a, a, a dissident Russian uh, newspaper, which was quoting uh, from, you know, unattributed forces in the government, which noted that since Putin gave his speech just last week, announcing uh, the first draft call-ups uh, of the Ukrainian war, uh, the, the figure the paper had excuse me, was 261,000 Russian men had crossed the borders of Russia into Kazakhstan and Finland and Mongolia and Lord knows where else uh, in, in just the five days since uh, since Putin had spoken. And, and I, I said, you know, give credit where credit is due, that Putin had managed in just five days to uh, exceed what it took Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon years uh, to achieve, which is uh, a draft age Americans crossing the border to Canada. Uh, and the whole, the whole uh, phenomenon of Russian uh, border crossings just reminded me of uh, the whole draft resistance slash draft evasion movement of the 1960s. And as a uh, draft age, uh, young American male uh, whose uh, student deferment expired in 1972, I remember very well uh, that whole set of issues. Most Americans did not have to cross the border. Uh, there were deferments. Uh, there was a whole cottage industry in the 60s of draft counselors, of, of attorneys working on keeping uh, guys out of the draft and uh, the occasional doctor, uh, as uh, Donald Trump could attest, uh, <laughs> could, uh, you know, rise to the occasion, uh, providing uh, information that would lead to a deferment. And I just have to say, going to Canada in 1969 seems a lot more appealing than going to Mongolia in 2022. It depends how you feel about yurts, basically. <laughs> if you're into yurts, Mongolia is is clearly the, uh, the primary, your, should be your primary destination in any yeah. case. I, I think more are going to Georgia and, and Finland, actually. But I read the, the lines, It's there's a 24-hour line of cars to get into Georgia as of Tuesday. Uh, yeah, uh, there is. Uh, and there was another account that said it was actually uh, you might you might have a three day wait. Uh, now, uh, just in the last day or so, the Russian government has begun uh, sending its agents to the borders to keep people from crossing. Often, which is what they do to the draft protesters they arrest. If you're a young a young man. And maybe even not so young, uh, you not only uh, get interdicted by the security force, but you're immediately drafted. So uh, the empire, as it were, strikes back. Is it safe? Is it fair at this point to refer to Ukraine as Putin's Vietnam? Well, it is in terms of its effect on the young male population of Russia, just as Vietnam had this effect on the young male population of the United States. Uh, you know, I mean, we, uh, the United States eventually withdrew from Vietnam. Uh, Putin has not 
uh, withdrawn. He's staging these sham elections to say that uh, actually what he's occupying is is now Russia, not just Ukraine. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's incipiently a Vietnam. And in terms of the effect on domestic public opinion, uh, it, it certainly has that potential. Of course, Russia doesn't have uh, free elections, whereas in the United States in 1968, we had uh, uh, three anti-war candidacies in the Democratic primaries from uh, uh, Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy. And then at the very end, after Kennedy was assassinated, George McGovern, and of course, McGovern ran an anti-war uh, can- uh, uh, primary campaign, which he won in 1972. Uh, Russian elections don't really uh, allow for that kind of thing. Well, returning now to our nation's capital, there's some important news about preventing Republicans in Congress from uh, pursuing Trump's strategy for disrupting the counting of electoral votes now in the next presidential election, 2024. And after, just to fill in the background here, you remember that on January 6th, the day when Congress officially records the electoral votes, Uh, Trump had tried to get members of Congress to challenge the election results in swing states by submitting fake slates of electors and trying to get Congress either and the vice president either to send the issue back to slate to state legislatures or to create enough constitutional confusion so that the whole thing would end up at the Supreme Court either way, preventing Biden from taking office. Democrats and now some key Republicans want to prevent this possibility from existing in 2024 and after. Uh, How are they doing? Well, they passed a bill in the House, and uh, uh, the bill makes clear that the powers of the vice president in opening uh, the electoral count uh, envelopes are simply, as it's called, ministerial. That does not mean he prays over them. That <laughs> means he or she simply reads the result. It's not Thank a question you. of vice presidential discretion, as Trump tried to convince Mike Pence uh, that it was. Uh, it uh, makes clear that the uh, state legislatures cannot overturn the popular vote in their state in the uh, ratification of electoral college votes. And it, uh, you know, the the previous existing law basically gives, you know, it only takes one senator and or one representative to challenge a state's vote. Uh, And so that was raised, I think, to a, in the House version to, uh, it would take something like one third of uh, the, the delegations. Now, in the Senate, there's been a bipartisan coalition working on getting enough Republican votes so that they can clear the filibuster hurdle of 60. And uh, the the news in the Senate is that Mitch McConnell has now come out in favor of the Senate's version of that bill, which uh, is pretty much the same as the House, except it says you need one fifth, not one third of uh, uh, the delegation, uh, the, you know, the whole body to challenge uh, a, a state's electoral count. So it now appears that uh, the Senate will pass its version and they can arrive at some common version, I would imagine, very quickly. They'll probably just go to the Senate version and uh, put that into law, supplanting the obviously 
uh, way too vague and porous uh, Electoral Count Act of 1887. And we know that Mitch McConnell was completely outraged by January 6th and spoke out vehemently against Trump that day, but he's been very quiet pretty much about Trump ever since. This is a a decisive step of Mitch McConnell uh, against Trump. Well, and against, you know, what the Capitol went through on January 6th, even even more. And, uh, you know, I I think McConnell can argue, well, this is really a procedural change. It's not a direct stab at Donald Trump because he doesn't want to be seen as doing that because that is a position that has uh, some dangers for continuation in power in uh, Republican ranks and, you know, possibly in the Republican Senate caucus. In uh, news about jobs, there was a striking headline in the New York Times this week. It said factory jobs are booming like it's the 1970s. It reported that workers in American manufacturing have not only regained all the jobs lost during the pandemic, this is in manufacturing, but they've added 67,000 more manufacturing jobs. Those numbers would probably be higher if the labor market weren't so tight. You know, I always thought that outsourcing and automation meant that every recession made factory jobs disappear and never return. Uh, That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Well, there are a couple of key shifts that are behind that uh, behind that change. Uh, One is all of the difficulties uh, the nation experienced with the supply chain when uh, China goes into lockdown and we are dependent on China for manufactured goods. Uh, we don't have manufactured goods. Um, when, uh, you know, uh, among the problems with uh, COVID, uh, there was uh, huge inflation in shipping rates. Uh, there are all kinds of things that made clear what should have been clear at the outset, which is that uh, long distance disruptable supply chains uh, you know, are, are, are really not uh, that good an idea. Now, that should have been obvious. It was certainly not the case to American corporations beginning in the 70s uh, and peaking once we established uh, basically completely friendly trade relations with China in the year 2000. Uh, Wall Street kept uh, pushing corporations to get higher profit margins, which meant production abroad. Um you know, and so uh, there has been definite movement towards uh, the the neologism is reshoring to bringing supply chains and manufacturing back to the United States. There are limits to what this can do, uh, as we know from the uh, automobile plants of European and Japanese companies. They like to go to the non-union South. Uh, we will see uh, more factories located there. We'll also see more factories located in Mexico. Again, simply because uh, regulation and uh, labor uh, standards and wages are, are, are lower. But yes, there's a general move uh, towards, uh, as a matter of national and corporate security, to bringing production uh, back to the United States. So 67,000 more manufacturing jobs than before the pandemic. How much credit should we give to Biden and the Democrats for this? 
Well, it, it's part of the Biden and the Democrats movement away from uh, the assumptions of, of neoliberalism uh, that, uh, you know, uh, shareholder value and profits uh, uh, were the outcome of markets. Markets always work better than government. So on one level, it's part and parcel of really the shifting politics and ideology of the Democratic Party. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, Trump, from a nationalist perspective, kept talking about uh, bringing production home, given the complete level of incompetence that characterized Trump's presidency. There really wasn't much movement towards it. And you I, know, I have to interrupt here, because as yeah. I recall, he said that Ivanka created millions of jobs all by herself. Uh-huh. OK, well, uh, <laughs> OK, we'll, we'll we'll bracket the Ivanka as a separate <laughs> economic category. Uh, but, you know, the, the Democrats have passed legislation like the CHIPS Act, bringing semiconductor production home, uh, like the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, provided for, uh, you know, uh, essentially more green energy uh, uh, pr production within the United States, like the Infrastructure Act, which also is a, is a significant uh, aid to domestic production, just as the construction of interstate highways in the 1950s and 60s certainly uh, bolstered, uh, bolstered that. So the legislative achievements uh, under the Biden presidency uh, really make real what were the uh, sort of nationalistic reshoring promises of the Trump presidency. Well, finally, it's time for our new feature, What's Up with Donald Trump? Trump's candidates in the key Senate races in swing states are not doing so well. In Arizona, there's the former libertarian Blake Masters, who's way behind incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly. In Georgia, Trump's candidate, the former football star Herschel Walker, challenging incumbent Raphael Warnock is widely regarded as the worst candidate in America right now. In Pennsylvania, Trump's candidate is TV Dr. Oz. Polls have him way beyond John Fetterman, the former mayor of Braddock and now the lieutenant governor. All of these Republicans have been super loyal to Donald Trump. So the question I asked was, what is Donald Trump doing for them? Trump has $99 million cash on hand in his Save America PAC. That's $99 million is more than the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee combined. Uh, Trump spent some of his money in the primaries taking out Republican uh, candidates who were insufficiently loyal to him. But since then, his Save America PAC has given a total of $757,000 to all federal candidates and another $150,000 to the Republican Party. That means he still has about $98 million left. What is he doing with this money? Well, we do know that in August alone, uh, the Save America PAC spent almost $4 million on Trump's legal fees. But my question for you is, how, how do you explain the fact that Trump is spending almost nothing supporting his own hand-picked candidates in the key Senate races? Well, his uh, most beloved hand-picked candidate is himself, and he's going to have more legal fees. His legal 
problems. Uh, you know, uh, this is this is the Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane. His legal problems just keep mounting, uh, and uh, he wants those on hand. And you know, the, the guy has a creature comfort needs, I'm sure. So uh, that probably accounts for sixty or seventy million of that ninety-eight million. I, I would also add to that list of. Trump back candidates uh, who he ain't uh, doling out any money towards now and who are weak candidates, J.D. Vance in Ohio is, is one more uh, questionable pick uh, who now is uh, probably questioning whether Trump's ever gonna, uh, you know, do anything more for him other than show up at rallies and bloviate. So uh, yeah, well, again, I mean, Trump has personal needs and, uh, Clearly, that's uh, what the supporters who sent him their contributions want to uh, make sure he, you know, he gratifies. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. Always good to be here. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Ken Burns has a new documentary out on PBS. It's called The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's the most politically engaged and relevant of all his work. It ends with Donald Trump and the threat from America's neo-Nazis today. For comment, we turn to David Nassau. He's a historian and biographer whose most recent book is the last million Europe's displaced persons from World War to Cold War. We talked about it here. He's also written prize-winning biographies that have been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize, including wonderful books about William Randolph Hearst, Andrew Carnegie, and Joe Kennedy. He's Professor Emeritus of History at the CUNY Grad Center, and his writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. David Nassau, welcome back. Thank you. So we have three episodes, two hours each. When I first read about it, I thought, we already know this history. We've been reading about it our whole lives. Ken Burns knows that. He's got one of his historian experts, Daniel Mendelssohn, who says, you think you've heard it all, but trust me, you haven't. I ended up agreeing with him totally. I found the show riveting. What did you think? Yeah, I, I agree totally. I began uh, watching it almost as a duty. Didn't think I was going to learn anything or be nearly as moved as I was. I thought it is an extraordinary accomplishment. It comes at the right time. It is not only a warning, but it is a piece of history that lives with us or should live with us. And I hope it gets the widest possible viewing. I hope that it makes its way into high schools and colleges. Um, It's remarkable. And it's also remarkable because it gets at the the nasty underbelly of American history. What makes it different from other Ken Burns documentaries is that it's about what America could have done and should have done, but didn't do. It's about American apathy and, let's face it, American hostility to immigrants, immigrants in general, and 
Jews in particular, and it's also about the malevolence of some powerful Americans, not just supporters of Hitler like Lindbergh, but high officials of FDR's New Deal like Breckenridge Long, the Assistant Secretary of State. Historians know all about this guy, but, but remind us, just for starters, what he did to help block help for Hitler's victims. The moment to get the Jews out was before the war begins and locks them into Eastern Europe. And Breckenridge Long, the Assistant Secretary of State, who was in charge of visas and immigration, made it impossible to do that. What happens is that not only are immigration restrictions, which are already um, tight and almost impossible for Eastern Europeans to get into this country, what Breckenridge Long does he make is make that even more difficult. Uh, Breckenridge Long is, is, is a real anti-Semite, and he does everything he can to keep immigrants out of the country, but especially Jewish immigrants. And the documentary also tells the stories of some heroes in America, people who did the right thing, especially a young Treasury Department lawyer named John Paley, P-E-H-L-E, along with his boss, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau Jr. Let's talk about them and about the War Refugee Board, which Roosevelt created in 1944. This is kind of your territory. Ken Burns has a very, and his collaborators have a very difficult task in front of them. They've got to come up with some sort of a happy ending. They've got to find heroes. And they overreach to do that in the end, I believe. Pele is a good man. Morgenthau, you know, does his best. The War Refugee Board is created, but it's much too late. By 1944, how many Jews have been killed? More than 5 million Jews have been killed. The only Jews that, are, that have survived are those in hiding, those who joined the partisans in Poland, about a quarter million Polish Jews who've escaped into the Soviet Union, and the Hungarian and the Romanian Jews, because their fascist Nazi-allied rulers will not give up their Jews. Um, that changes in 1944 and 1945 for the Hungarians. But by the time the War Refugee Board is established, the, the worst has been done. So we've talked about the evil Breckenridge Long. We've talked about the heroic efforts of Henry Morgenthau. What about FDR himself? How much responsibility does he bear? How much blame? This is something that historians have been debating for a long time. Ken Burns himself has a soft spot for Franklin and Eleanor. He made a whole previous uh, documentary about them. I wonder if you agree with the critics who say he treats them here with kid gloves. He gives FDR the benefit of the doubt every time. I think that's un unfair. What we have to do in watching this, and maybe Ken Burns and his collaborators didn't do enough of it, the focus can't be on Roosevelt. It is the American public. It, it is the men and women who could have spoken out from the 1920s when the quotas are established 
through the 30s. This is a nationwide problem. This is a problem, the root of which is the American people and their elected representatives. They are elected representatives. Roosevelt makes the decision that the first priority is defeating Hitler. The first, second, third priority is defeating Hitler. And to divert resources to rescue the Jews or the few that are left, if it detracts from the war effort or from war morale, cannot be allowed. Roosevelt is, is not a villain here. If, if we want to look at it for villains, we have to look at churches, at educational institutions, at the press, at people of privilege and responsibility who should have spoken out for 20 years and did not. Yeah, I have to agree. And, and I think Ken Burns makes that pretty clear that the American public overwhelmingly did not want to fight a war to save Europe's Jews. Ken Burns has one of his historians saying, the War Department doesn't want the soldiers to know much about the persecution of Jews because they're worried they won't fight hard if they think they're being sent to save Jews. You mentioned the press as one of the guilty parties here, and that's certainly one of Ken Burns' continuing themes, showing how the press downplays and creates doubts about the reports that are coming about killing Jews. And there are some notable exceptions, one of which we want to point to here. Ken Burns quotes the Nation magazine's editor, Frida Kirschway, who wrote early in 1943, let me quote, you and I and the president and the Congress and the State Department are accessories to the crime and share Hitler's guilt. If we had behaved like humane and generous people instead of complacent, cowardly ones, the two million Jews lying today in the earth of Poland and Hitler's other crowded graveyards would be alive and safe. We had it in our power to rescue this doomed people, but we did not lift a hand to do it. Or perhaps it would be fairer to say that we lifted just one cautious hand encased in a tight-fitting glove of quotas and visas and affidavits and a thick layer of prejudice. Close quote. Frida Kirschway, editor of The Nation magazine, early in 1943. That's kind of Ken Burns' theme and kind of our, our theme here. One of the great features of this film, I think, it, it makes clear that this was not a secret. Americans have gotten away for a long time by saying, we didn't know anything about it, exactly as the German citizenry did. But it's false. We knew what was going on and nothing was done. Ken Burns ends the story of the Holocaust with the liberation of the camps. Is that the way you would end the story? No, the, the story can't end there. And, and there's a little bit of misrepresentation. There's a film video of Rabbi David Eichhorn giving a service at Dachau. Um, it's filmed by George Stevens, who's attached to the army at the time, the very important producer. But we see only half the story. Eichhorn had planned to have this service on the first Sabbath after the liberation. Rabbi Eichhorn arrived at the camp on Saturday morning and he discovered that nothing had been set up. He was told that, quote, the Polish non-Jewish inmates had threatened that 
If a Jewish service were held in the square, they would break it up by force. George Stevens wanted to photograph it, to film it. And he went to the American commander and he said, if you don't allow Icon to do, give this service, I will let the world know. So that's number one. Another instance, we are told in the world knows one of the most famous radio broadcasts ever is Edward R. Murrow from Buchenwald. Well, listen, listen to the speech, read the transcript. There is no mention of Jews. The newsreels do not mention Jews. Eisenhower does not mention Jews. Time magazine and the newspapers and the press in reporting about the liberation of the camps do not mention the Jews. So at at war's end, Americans celebrate the defeat of this evil empire, but with no recognition, no understanding of the six million that have been killed. So the neglect of the Jews continues way after the war. Jewish displaced persons do not come into this country in large numbers until 1949 and 1950. They are moved from the concentration camps into displaced persons camps where they spend from three to five years. The state of Israel is formed and recognized by Truman and the Americans because the Americans don't wanna let the Jews into the United States of America. These are realities that that are lost. We also have to talk about the way Ken Burns ends his history of the U.S. and the Holocaust. He ends it on January 6th. He's, the, the last segment is kind of a fast montage. Police dogs attacking civil rights demonstrators in Birmingham in 1963. The assassination of Martin Luther King, 1968. Then... Trump supporters demonstrating against Muslims. Trump at a rally saying, my first day in office, these people are gone. Then white nationalists marching in Charlottesville, chanting, the Jews will not replace us. Then a neo-Nazi killing 11 Jews at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. And finally, the attack on the Capitol, January 6th, the guy carrying a Confederate flag inside the Capitol, the flag of treason and slavery. And the mob, including neo-Nazis, including one we focus on wearing a sweatshirt that says Camp Auschwitz. Then Daniel Mendelssohn returns to say that something like the Holocaust could happen again, this time in America. Don't kid yourself, he says. So unlike every other Ken Burns special, this one ends almost with a call to arms. We have to, we have to stop the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists in America. We can't let them win. Look, I have, a, as a historian, I have a, a strange relationship to what is called presentism and to the ending of this. I think it should be there. But I also think at the end, we lose sight of the fact that this is a unique moment, a unique and horrible moment in European history and in U.S. history. There are other genocides. There are other massacres of innocent people. But this is six million Jews who were killed. This is most of European Jewry. 
And I, I don't want that lesson to be lost. One of the problems I find with this documentary is that the Ken Burns approach is to focus on individuals. And that's good. I, I do it in my own work. Historians have to do that. But at the same point, at the same time, the reality is that six million lives were lost. We are not confronted by the enormity of that loss, by what genocide means. There's another ingredient in a Ken Burns documentary, and that is people speak with sadness, with remorse, with melancholy, but not with anger. And I want anger. I, I want someone to cry out about this tragedy and to say, it's six million Jews. It's almost all of European Jewry. And I don't want that to be lost. I don't want that unique moment, the singular suffering of European Jews to be subsumed as a lesson and as a warning. It is a lesson, it is a warning, but it's also a cataclysmic moment in our history and has to be recognized as such. David Nassau, his most recent book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. David, thanks for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book, Who Was Ricardo Flores Magón? And how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century 
who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their their newspaper, Renacion, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles. The gag orders issued in 1903. This group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the Robert Barron era, they had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico. As you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments, so they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but that's joined by ordinary people, cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers and whatnot. Let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. As historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48 when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans were now inside the borders of the United States. So we're talking about 50 years after that, when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of, of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, um, then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century, about you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns on haciendas and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the... Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to 
rebuild their community here in the United States. And that's happening between 1904 and 1910. They come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magon in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And Emma Goldman, of course, is one of the great anarcho-feminists of the early 20th century. And Ricardo goes on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. He stands against marriage as a form of slavery. Um, and so they're talking to each other. They're influencing each other. They're figuring out that there are transcontinental, international relationships among workers and organizers that if the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and others are um, playing an anti-labor role in the United States and they're gaining a lot of their capital and their profit and their power out of their investments in Mexico, that they have a shared goal, right, of challenging the power of these elites, which has extended across borders. And so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer, right? He had brought stability to Mexico. And they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals, helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renaracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano, and they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both sub subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a, a mine in northern Mexico, in Cananea, Sonora, Mexico in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the, the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers, 
about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. Well, the United States looks at that and says, oh no. <laughs> and they get really busy. The US Marshals, Department of War, the Attorney General, the Post Office, everybody gets involved, all hands on deck to do whatever they can to stop the PLM from organizing this revolution in Mexico. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. The PLM is able to um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration, that the United States President Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency super force throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I, I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, black folks, Asian folks and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. It's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of 
the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Oplan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916 is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together. And you also have one of the deadliest suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing, is that almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century, my hope is that it's part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right, I knew the moment... I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as Malos Mexicanos. And so this is part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. We spoke with Kelly Little Hernandez about her book, Bad Mexicans, in May. It's been long listed for the National Book Award. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, does Minnesota really have the world's oldest rock? That's what the historical marker says at a rock in the parking lot of the Yellow Medicine County Historical Society in Granite Falls, Minnesota. The rocks there are three and a half billion years old and are known by geologists internationally. They represent rare examples of the Earth's early crust. 
The ancient rock of the Minnesota River Valley decorates prominent buildings from the Twin Cities to Singapore. That's because some of the outcroppings, known as rainbow granite, feature striking pink and gray coloring. Fountains outside the White House are made of this rock, which also decorates Chicago's Adler Planetarium. They are quarried today at Granite Falls, mostly for cemetery monuments. Starting about 70,000 years ago, glaciers buried most of Minnesota's ancient geology under sediment. When the glaciers melted, they created a massive lake, Lake Agassiz, which extended from Canada into Minnesota. The lake flooded and formed a torrential river. Geologists call it Glacial River Warren that carved a deep valley across Minnesota. That event exposed the ancient rocks in what is now the Minnesota River Valley, named after the comparatively small river that runs there today. Older rocks have recently been discovered in Canada and in Greenland. Thanks to Eric Roper of the Minneapolis Star Tribune for this story. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music